Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. It's great to see you this morning. So it's a beautiful day. One of the last uh, warm days, I think, that we're going to have here. And uh, we're going to have a fun time today. How many of you grew up singing in church? Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. And what's the rest? For the Bible tells me so. For the Bible tells me so. And for many of you, that's where both the blessing of faith began in Jesus. And for many of you, that may also be where serious questions and problems in the faith began. In our series, The Other Side of the Fence, we've been talking about the rapid increase in the number of people in the U.S. who are jumping the fence away from religion, declaring themselves having no religious affiliation. They are calling themselves, and sociologists are calling them, nuns. And there's also a rapid increase in the number of people who still find church valuable, still call themselves Christian, but are gradually distancing themselves from the faith and attending less and less frequently. Uh, because of this, we were drawn to a series that Andy Stanley did, and we're borrowing some of the outline for the series, and today some of his points as well. We suggested last week that uh, some, maybe many of the reasons people are moving away from the faith or jumping the fence and leaving religion altogether are actually legitimate good reasons. Frankly, reasons that they should move away from, because there are versions of Christianity that somebody told you about as God, who God was, and it wasn't fully accurate or complete enough of an explanation for what it meant to be a Christian. And yet that version of Christianity for them, maybe for you, was so unappealing that it's causing you to distance yourself from God, maybe jumping the fence altogether, leaving the childhood faith you grew up with behind in the rearview mirror. But you still, I suspect, uh, find yourself in those quiet moments when you are dealing with life or faith and meaning questions or just quiet moments thinking to yourself. I grew up around church, singing kids' church songs, maybe went to youth group, but, I, but I'm not really religious. I have so many questions. The Bible seemed to be a lot of rules and beliefs that didn't always add up to making sense of the reality of my life as I grew older. And as you continue to think about that, you likely also think, but I hope there's something out there. Because not believing in anything doesn't offer any hope either. So before we move on today, first I want to give you a warning. You need to listen really carefully today. Day, no daydreaming, no, no streaming NFL pregame shows, no social media. Because it might result in you missing a point and not really understanding what I said today and uh, maybe even calling me a heretic if you miss one of the points. And I love bonfires, but I prefer not to be the center of yours today. <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What's the implication of that statement? The implication is the reason to believe is because of the Bible. I grew up, like many of you, in a world where if the Bible says it, that settles it. It's a very simple, clear, simple statement. The problem is many times in most of the Bible says it, that settles it, churches, the children of those churches went away to college and discovered that the assertion, that assertion did not fully settle it for them. They left them with lots of questions starting to bubble up. And when they came home with their deep uh, philosophical questions and questions of science and faith, too often... 
the response of good church people is to say, well, I don't really know about that. I don't go down that path because if the Bible says it, that settles it. And the problem is all too often, too many of the church people who use that model use it to avoid difficult challenges, to avoid studying deeply, use the model, the Bible says it and that settles it, to avoid facing the really unsettling things about the Bible, about faith, about life, about science, and about reality. But there's an even bigger problem with that. When we go to that cliche that the Bible says it, that settles it, what it sets up for us is that if absolutely every part of the Bible is not true, or if it's not clearly understandable by me to be true, then your faith becomes an all-or-nothing deal based on how you perceive the perfection of the reliability of the Bible. And the, uh, that all-or-nothing, frankly, doesn't need to be an issue. Christianity is far more enduring than whether the Bible is error-free. Now, before you grab the lighter fluid and start that bonfire, just listen carefully. I love the Bible. I trust the Bible as reliable. I find meeting God to be a very real experience for me and beautiful in the pages of Scripture. But here's a statement I really want you to hear. The more deeply I face and study the issues identified as inconsistencies or flaws in the Bible, the more I actually trust God's word as his reliable word to us, to show us who God is and how to follow him and live. And I understand that's not the case for some, maybe many of you. The apparent inconsistencies in the Bible often diminish your faith. So I'm going to tell you straight up what my agenda is for today. My agenda is I want to remove your doubts and concerns over the Bible as a barrier to you having faith in following Jesus, first and foremost. I want to show you that believing in Jesus and your faith is not dependent on how you view absolutely every aspect of the Bible. And I'm also going to, at the end of the message unabashedly give you an invitation to re-engage with the Bible and begin to increasingly trust it as God's reliable word to humanity and more importantly, to you personally. See, I believe the Bible is reliable, but I don't believe it's always used reliably or understood reliably. So the Bible says it, so that settles it. The motto is such a simplification of the truth of how reliable the Bible is that it also often results in oversimplifications of how people understand the Bible. And sadly, many of those oversimplifications have resulted in costing the faith of many people who are close to me, who have jumped the fence and run away and never come back yet to their faith. It's an easy trap to fall into. For example, the Bible says in several places in very simple ways, Jesus healed all the sick and the demon-possessed people who were brought to him. So if Jesus healed all, and God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which these are all accurate quotes of Scripture, then God must heal all today. But someone close to you didn't get healed. 
Even though you confessed everything right, even though you prayed just right, even though you believed everything right, even though you controlled your thoughts to think everything right, certainly your faith in that moment was bigger than a tiny mustard seed. And Jesus even says, if your faith is the size of a mustard seed faith, then you can throw this mountain into the sea, but the Bible tells me so, but it didn't happen. And the entire house of cards of your faith begins to crumble and fall down. Or another example, the Bible says, give and it will be given to you. Press down, shaken together, running over, it will be given to you. So you gave $1,000 and you struggled to pay your bills and so your electric was shut off because you couldn't afford to pay it. Or the Bible says there's a worldwide flood, but the science doesn't give conclusive proof of that. Or the Bible seems to say the world is four to 6,000 years old, but science says it's four billion, billions of years old. So you begin to step away, maybe even run away from trusting the Bible told me so approach to faith because at least in your experience, the simplicity wasn't deep enough to answer all the questions of your real life experience. Last week we talked about somebody told me so, God. This week we're talking about the Bible tells me so, Jesus. So buckle up, we're going to cover a lot really fast here. Here's a truth we need to get really clear. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. My knowledge and faith in the love of Jesus does not exist because the Bible told me so. That's saying, that's like saying you exist because your birth certificate says so. The Bible documents something that happened through Jesus, through his immediate followers, and resulting in tens of thousands of followers of Jesus. What happened, happened first, not as a result of the Bible which documents it. So here is a baseline truth. Christianity, being a faithful follower of the one true creator God revealed in Jesus, can exist even without the Bible. Because God is real and can be known. Think about it. Abraham and all the patriarchs up to Moses lived as followers, faithful followers of God without the Bible. People followed Jesus. Tens of thousands of people followed Jesus long before the New Testament was widely circulated or known, even before much of it began to be written. Though it's around those pieces, though those pieces of the scripture were around very early about after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Bible as we know it wasn't assembled until 350 A.D. It wasn't even called the Bible until 388 A.D. Think, think about this for just a minute. By 350 A.D., This small band of Jewish disciples had grown to the point that when Constantine declared the Christian faith legal in 312, see, Constantine's decision, at least initially, wasn't because he was a follower of Jesus. It wasn't even because he wanted to be a follower of Jesus. Initially, Constantine's decision to legalize Christianity was because he had just militarily reunited the Roman Empire after defeating several competing emperors of the Tetrarchy, and he was looking for something that most of the Roman Empire had in common to be a unifying factor. And that unifying factor that he found was being a follower of Jesus. 
In 300 years, Christianity spread, defeating the pantheon of the Roman gods, the gods of Egypt, the gods of many of the barbarians around. Christianity was spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire, from northern Africa all the way to England and beyond the Roman Empire to, to India and beginning to touch even the barbarian areas of northern Europe and Eurasia. And it wasn't the Bible told me so faith. Very few people had very few parts of the Bible, if any parts at all, during that time. Christianity made its greatest strides in history before the Bible was readily available in their hands. In fact, let's think about history further. The Bible was not readily available to most people until the Gutenberg printing press in 1440. And think about even in the last century. One of the greatest Movements of the past century of God has been the spread of Christianity in China. And that has largely happened without much of the Bible in their hands because it was illegal and they didn't have access to it. The greatest movements of Christianity have not been fueled by Jesus loves me so, for the Bible tells me so. Think about it for a moment, just in another way. If somebody were to go back in time and say to Peter... Peter, did you know that there's no conclusive evidence of worldwide flood? Peter, did you know that people are skeptical about the Israelites migrating from Egypt to Promised Land because of scant archaeological evidence? Now, Peter wouldn't argue the proof of those things, even if we believe in them, which I do. No, Peter would say, well, I'm not so sure about what you're saying, but here's what I know. I watched my friend Jesus live, teach, heal, raise people from the dead. I watched him predict his own death and how he would die and his own resurrection. And then I saw him die and rise from the dead exactly as he said. And I was at the empty tomb. I and dozens of other people talked to him at the very same time. So I know it wasn't just me hallucinating. I hugged him. I had breakfast with him on the beach. And he'd probably go on and say, I'm a Jew and I love and trust the Jewish scriptures. But Peter would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the scriptures. I'm a follower of Jesus because when a person says they're going to die and rise again and they do it, I think I'm going to go with that. Right? During the first three centuries, the debate for faith, for belief, didn't center on the Bible. It's centered on a real person, Jesus, and whether that real person rose from the dead. And these were the persecution years. They were the years of throwing people to the lions, of burning people at the stake, of being stoned to death in the public square. Jesus' brother James, not the original two disciples of Jesus, also named James, this is his brother, didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, he thought Jesus was insane. Until after the resurrection. And then Jesus' brother believed and he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he was martyred for his faith in 62 AD. Paul, a state-sanctioned, up-and-coming superstar, fire-breathing, murdering terrorist, was persecuting and killing Christians, trying to put Christianity out of business. But then he meets Jesus in such a powerful way that he becomes Jesus' leading fan, writing most of the New Testament scriptures we have, and turned the Roman world upside down, and he himself was martyred for his faith by Emperor Nero. 
See, the Christian faith is not based on Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's nice that the Bible tells us that, but it's not based upon that. It's based on Jesus loves me, this I know, for Jesus, the risen Savior, is a true event in history and a living experience I experience today. And yet we can also rightly say that without Scripture, knowing God and who Jesus really is, is much more difficult, more subjective, and more prone to corruption and abuse, abuse without reliable Scriptures. So if you're a nun or you're a person who loves Jesus but doesn't trust the Christian Scriptures, how can you even start to trust them? What's the, what's the basis to even trust them? Allow me to propose that you need to answer three questions. First question is, do you have an accurate copy of the New Testament today? The second question is, are the New Testament documents historically reliable? And the third question we need to ask is, are the New Testament documents true and not made up historical fiction? Do the documents actually tell that Jesus existed and that he truly did miracles, died, and rose from the dead? Now, if we wanted to get into the weeds of all these arguments, we could spend the next two days together. I'm assuming you want to go home for lunch, as I, as I would like to go and enjoy this afternoon. So we're going to quickly go through some of the high points of this stuff and hit the high points. So do you have an accurate copy of the New Testament? Through the practice of science, scientific historical textual criticism, many scholars, but two of the leading ones that have on the subject, Bruce Metzger, a Christian and longtime professor at Princeton University before his death in 2007, and Bart Ehrman, an atheist New Testament scholar teaching at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, together conclude that the manuscript we have today in the New Testament is 99% accurate to the original manuscripts. And the 1% of words that are in question have no impact on theological or, or historical meaning in any way of the text. They say it was copied with username and password level carefulness. Among credible academics who are specialists in the studying of the New Testament documents and their transmission through the ages, there is virtually no debate as to the accuracy of the New Testament documents we have today compared to the originals. The primary debate you will hear in academic circles comes from people who are not specialists in the New Testament documents. Their specialty is in some other field. And even though they're intellects with PhDs, their assertions are typically driven by their own secular bias and actually pay no attention to the solid research out there. But because just because we have a document that's accurate doesn't necessarily mean it's historically accurate. So let's start looking at that question by reading Luke's account of Jesus' life in chapter 3. It begins this, this way. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, and the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, so when did this happen? When did this happen? I mean, Luke, who spent years researching and interviewing eyewitnesses for his two works that we call today the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, is putting an X on the map. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, I dare you to prove me wrong on how careful and accurate my research is. 
Dr. Colin J. Hemmer, a former research fellow at the Cambridge University Tyndale House, verified through archaeological evidence 84 historical references that could only be made by an eyewitness of the day. From the names of small-town politicians to local slang, the topographical features, weather patterns, water depths, and other details. Sir William Ramsey, the famed archaeologist, began his research skeptical of Luke. And after spending 20 years on location in the Middle East, Ramsey concluded this. He said, Luke should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. You may press the words of Luke in any degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. But it's not just Luke. John, Matthew, Mark, Paul's writings, you find the same historically reliable information in all of the New Testament, the kind that could have only been written by eyewitnesses to the events, not the kind made up later and written to support legend. You also see 10 ancient non-Christian manuscript sources from some of the greatest historical writers of the time. You've got Josephus and Tacitus and Thallus and Suetonius and Emperor Trajan and Pliny the Younger and others who confirm many of the New Testament historical facts. Here are some of the most prominent facts that they actually substantiate by non-Christian historians, that Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a miracle worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. They even confirm an eclipse and an earthquake occurred when Jesus died. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. They confirm his disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief, and Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. So including the Christian sources, there are 42 sources written within the first 150 years, 10 by non-believing historians. Some of the non-Christian sources, like Josephus, the Jewish, great Jewish Roman historian, were written while there were still eyewitnesses to Jesus still alive. Now, this is not a smoking gun to believe that what was recorded is true. In fact, none of the individual arguments we're making today by themselves are a smoking gun. But together, these arguments that we're going to talk about today make a really compelling case historically and statistically. There is little serious academic dispute to the New Testament writings being historically accurate. But just like we have historical fiction today, there are still debates as to whether the New Testament doesn't best fit into that category. It's kind of like, kind of like when I read a Tom Clancy novel. I love Clancy novels. Anybody else? They're so good that after I, after I get done reading them, I often have to catch myself going, oh, that's real history and that was Tom Clancy. Uh, because his writings are so topographical, so culturally, politically, historically based and plausible, it seems that they could have happened or maybe did happen, but it's nonetheless fiction, right? So some argue that because of inconsistencies between different authors, Matthew says some things John doesn't and some, some of them seem to be different, that these inconsistencies are proof that the storyline is made up legend. There's a guy named J. Warner Wallace, a former homicide detective and author of Cold Case Christianity, says there are three reasons people commit crimes and engage in conspiracies. This would be a conspiracy that we're talking about here to write a legend. Their three reasons are money, sex, or power. Fact is, none of these were present with the writers of the New Testament. The disciples didn't get rich. 
In fact, many of them have lost their jobs or lost their customers because they were frequently excommunicated and boycotted by the culture around them, whether it was Jew or Roman. Uh, there is no power to be gained. Eleven out of the twelve original disciples of Jesus were martyred for their faith. They weren't elevated in status. And in spite of some really bad scholarship by Dan Brown, there's no sexual advantage to be gained. In a culture where sexual promiscuity was, was celebrated, the Christian message was faithfulness in marriage to one spouse. See, these guys weren't Tom Clancy writing historical fiction to make a million bucks off of each book. Their writings were outlawed, gathered, and destroyed on many occasions, as were they. And many scholars say the inconsistencies actually build a case stronger for the documents being true eyewitness accounts. Because many of the inconsistencies are identical to the kind of inconsistencies you would see in eyewitness accounts we see today. Take, for example, the sinking of the Titanic. In eyewitness interviews, some said the ship went down in one piece. Others said it broke in two before it sank, which was true. Well, at 2 a.m. in the dark on the open seas, if you were behind the boat, it probably looked like it sank in one piece. If you were beside the boat, it probably looked like the boat broke in two before it sank. Though there are differences, all agree the core of what happened, the boat sank. Many of the inconsistencies in the New Testament are consistent with eyewitness accounts. They report varying perspectives on the same thing, but they all agree on the core of what happened. It goes even further. Cambridge professor J.J. Blunt identified over 60 instances in the New Testament alone where when you put the inconsistencies next to each other, they actually fit together like puzzle pieces that reveal a more accurate picture of what actually happened, lending credibility that the differences are actually true eyewitness testimony. In fact, arguing that the consistencies in the New Testament are indicative that the accounts are not true and rather legend is actually grossly inconsistent with how legend is normally written. In the writing of legend, the people who originate it generally get together and get their storyline straight and create a believable, sanitized storyline. Further, if these beliefs are not true, if, if, if they were made up history and not real, the miracles and all the, the resurrection, then, then why would 11 out of the 12 apostles be killed for their faith with absolutely no evidence of the disciples recanting their belief. I mean, surely, as desperate as the Romans and the Jews were to put down Christianity, if there had been any of the leading eyewitnesses from the apostles to the 120 other people who followed Jesus most of his three years of ministry, if any of them had recanted and said, this is all a lie, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, don't you think that would have been written down and trumpeted across the Jewish nation and all of Rome? And yet the secular historians, with a bias to want to discredit Christianity, who still wrote on the subject of Christianity, never mention it, and in fact substantiate some of the historical claims. Additionally, the claims to miraculous healings and resurrection of Christianity are different than any other religion. The closest is Islam, and yet even in that, Muhammad in Surah 2.23 denies that he did any miracles. It wasn't until 150 years later that Islamic writings appear and attribute miracles to Muhammad. But there's no eyewitness evidence in Islam. Contrast the development of miracles attributed to Muhammad 150 years later to the New Testament. All of the New Testament is believed by most scholars to have been written by 70 A.D., at the latest 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
There's some dispute among some secular and liberal scholars, a few of them, that date some works as late as 86, but still, the majority of scholarship says 70 AD and earlier for all of the New Testament. So, let me give you a little example to make a point out of that. The historical facts of how the book of Acts ends put it being written no later than 62 AD. In fact, Luke mentions the martyrdom in that book of several prominent Christian leaders, but he makes no mention of the martyrdom of Paul, Peter, or James, Jesus' brother, who were all martyred in the early 60s. So due to archaeological studies, we also know that Paul wrote some of his letters before 50 A.D., First uh, Corinthians was written, most people believe, in 55. Paul quotes in First Corinthians, uh, he quotes Luke's gospel. So that puts Luke's eyewitness account of Jesus' life earlier than that, right? And Paul quotes as well in First Corinthians 15, a creed that secular scholars agree predates 40 A.D., that means there are pieces of the New Testament writings floating around for which we have verifiable evidence, even by secular scholars, less than a decade after Jesus' death and resurrection. Meaning, with literally tens of thousands of eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' miracles and death, as well as hundreds of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection still alive, there was ample ability to use eyewitnesses to debunk the stories if they were not true. But again, you don't see that happening. Even among the earliest secular historians who were anti-Christian, they make no attempt to debunk the miracles or belief in the resurrection. And it isn't an argument from silence. The Jewish and Roman historians were alive, who were alive during the eyewitnesses not only did not debunk those facts, they actually acknowledged some of them. So what I've briefly done today is given you an outline of the common scholarly arguments from historicity, for the historicity and truthfulness of scriptures. They're often presented in, in a little format, a little, somebody was really smart to put this together in seven E's. The early testimony, how quickly the documents appeared and were unchallenged by eyewitnesses of his, and other historians. The eyewitness testimony, how even utilizing the tools of forensic analysis of witness testimony, everything points to the New Testament documents, especially the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life as being truthful, accurate eyewitness testimony. The third E is elaborate testimony. In other words, as different authors elaborate on the event they are describing, do each of those authors fill in gaps in the other author's narrative, therefore making a more clear, bigger picture of all the puzzle pieces being put into place? Therefore, what initially appeared as inconsistent by different authors in the narrative instance, instead becomes a stronger argument for the truthfulness and accuracy of the documents rather than undermining them. The, uh, the, another one that I didn't deal with today is embarrassing testimony. I didn't go into that, but, but we've talked about it in the past. It's the idea that the academic study of how legends are created across history indicates that people who are creating legends don't write embarrassing stuff about themselves when they create legends. They write things, they're not going to write things that undermine how strong or good people think the leaders of the movement are. Yet the Gospels and Acts are full of the authors revealing embarrassing things about themselves and st stating things as fact that the culture would have looked at and made it harder to sell the message because of them stating that. Lending me the case 
that they're actually being truthful rather than creating legend. There's also another E, excruciating testimony, the evidence of people being willing to endure selfless hardship or even die for their faith at such great consistency that it becomes really hard to argue that they did not believe to be true what they were saying. There's also expected testimony, which we didn't cover today, but this is the statistical odds of Jesus or any one person fulfilling all the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. Many of you may remember a couple years ago we showed a schoolhouse rock kind of a genre video that mathematically showed the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies of the Old Testament. And this mathematician basically said that, that 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 would be like equivalent to covering the state of Texas two feet deep with Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. And then taking one, licking all the chocolate off, hiding it in the middle of the state, blinding, blindfolding somebody and telling them to walk in and find that thing. And they find, it on, they find the one that had all the chocolate licked off on their very first try. That's the kind of statistical odds of Jesus having fulfilled just eight of the 300 prophecies about him. There's also extra-biblical testimony. Secular and archaeological resources that give outside verification to the historical events and truthfulness of the scriptures. So while we didn't cover the Old Testament today, there are similar convincing arguments to trust the Old Testament scriptures as historically accurate and true as well. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? The reality is there's no explanation for the success of the church, the early church, outside of them telling the story of a historical event and a real encounter with God through Jesus. The success of the church wasn't primarily based on the Bible told me so. There wasn't a Bible widely available or even organized to tell people about yet for everyone. So now... When you're older, that statement you grew up with, come on, worship team, we're going to close here in a second. So that statement you grew up with, Jesus loves me, this I know. That first part of that statement is true, still true. But as an adult, here's how that song changes for you. Jesus loves me, this I know. Because John tells me so, the disciple who saw Jesus rise from the dead and eat breakfast with him on the, on the beach. Jesus loves me, this I know, because James, the brother of Jesus, who thought Jesus was insane, saw Jesus after the resurrection and became a leader of the Jerusalem church, dying for his faith. You can say, Jesus loves me, this I know, because Luke, a man of science, a medical doctor in his day, thoroughly investigated the events, interviewing eyewitnesses, and was so accurate that even secular archaeologists and historians count him as one of the greatest, most reliable historical writers of all time. You can say, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Apostle Paul, who hated Christians, had such a profound encounter with Jesus that he became his his most raving fan and died for his faith. You can say, Jesus loves me, this I know, because an early church defied the emperor and the gods they were supposed to worship and the faith of their own families and their own nation to follow a person who was and is truly alive. Jesus loves me. This I know because millions of followers of Jesus throughout the centuries have encountered God in a way that transformed and changed their lives. Not just because of a book, but because of a God who is alive and a God who is real. Jesus loves me, this I know, because Jesus predicted his own death and his own resurrection and both history 
along with the experience of hundreds of eyewitnesses and millions of people across the centuries testify to the fact that Jesus is indeed really alive. Now, fortunately for us, those who were closest to the events documented what they saw. So if you stepped away from your faith because the Bible didn't add up, I want to invite you to reconsider The core of the issue for you isn't over the Bible and how it all adds up. It is about a Savior who died and rose from the dead to prove that it was so. And as a bonus to that, as you study more deeply and encounter God in the pages of Scripture, you'll also find that you can trust the Bible as God's word to you. The story of God in history revealing who he is to humanity and to you personally. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, sometimes we just, we just do the same things the Pharisees did. And where, where Jesus confronted them and said, you know, you study the Bible and you just forget that it points to me. And we let the Bible become a hang-up for us because we don't understand it or don't, don't get some of it. It doesn't always make sense that we walk away from our faith. Lord, I pray that for anyone here or anybody listening, that, that, that if that's what they did, Lord, I pray that you'd come to them. That you'd help them trust that you, Jesus, are a real person. You are God who came and lived among us. And you rose from the dead. And regardless of the questions they have in the Bible, that you, they can trust you and trust that truth. Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us to engage when the Bible doesn't make sense, when we feel like it, there's inconsistencies and it's troubling to us and it's unsettling to us. Would you help us engage and trust you to lead us to understanding how it can be so reliable to guide our faith? Holy Spirit, just come. Remove those lies we believed. Help us receive you as a person coming to us. Lord, right now as we continue to worship, would you just come and inhabit our praise in Jesus' name. So glad you joined us this morning. Uh, We're going to invite you, uh, prayer team, if you can come on down. If you are here and you want prayer for anything, whether it's a a physical issue you're asking God for healing for, whether it's a decision you need to make or just a, a point of confusion, or maybe you're here today and you go, okay, Ross, I walked away from my faith and distanced myself from faith because of all the apparent inconsistencies I saw in the Bible, and I couldn't get solid enough answers, but, but I get what you're saying. I get, that, I get that I do actually trust that Jesus is a real person, and, and he did what he said. I, I can buy that, and I want to return to my faith. If you want to do that, I encourage you to turn to a friend and pray with them before you leave or come down to one of the people here and do that. I don't expect today's talk to convince you to trust the Bible, but I hope you'll receive the invitation you can grow to trust the Bible. It is trustworthy. It is God's word. And through all the questions you have, he can lead you through them. But don't ever let your struggles with that alienate your faith. 
because your faith is grounded in a person, in history, in event, and a person who's still alive today. If you're going to come back next week, you know, we, we last week we talked about the somebody told you so gods and we talked about a bunch of versions of Christianity that people have rejected and maybe you've rejected. In fact, we, we made the case that all of us actually need to reject some of those versions of Christianity or at least they need to grow up. But we didn't really give you a whole lot on so who is Jesus and what should we believe. Next week we're going to start looking at Jesus in his own words and try to give us some answers to what true Christianity really is. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.